Hello, welcome to Marginalia, a podcast for the lovers of all things book. My name is Carrie Schroeder, and this is our pilot episode to give you all potential listeners a sampling of what you can look forward to in this podcast series. Every other week, we will investigate the hidden stories behind books and printed matter. This is not a book review podcast, nor a book club. Instead, our team of writers, book artists, and rare book experts offer varying perspectives on everything from conception to creation to reception of books. If you are curious about tales of the bizarre and esoteric books, the traditional and not-so-traditional world of bookbinding, the obsessive yet meditative nature of letterpress printing, or the endangered species that is the indie press, then this podcast just may be for you. Marginalia's upcoming episodes include such hot topics as Human Skin Books. Where are they now? John Horwood was a creeper born in England 1803 who as a teenager became infatuated with a woman named Eliza Balsam. After several failed attempts at wooing her, he dealt with the rejection by throwing acid in her face in 1820. Horwood continued threatening and harassing Miss Balsam for another year until he found her conversing with another man. Horwood flew into a rage and threw a rock at Miss Balsam, striking her in the temple. Balsam died days after the attack, and John Horwood was tried for her murder and hanged in 1821. In jail, Horwood lamented of his crime. Lord... Thou knowest that I did not mean to take away her life, but merely to punish her, though I confess that I had made up my mind, some time or other, to murder her. Dr. Richard Smith had treated Miss Balsam up until her death. He ordered the dissection of Horwood's body after his execution, which at the time was considered taboo, a desecration of the corpse. Friends of Horwood's attempted to steal his body before the dissection could be performed, but Dr. Smith, predicting such actions, had removed the body from the infirmary immediately after his death. Dr. Smith then carefully removed the skin from Horwood's body and had it tanned. His skin was then used to bind all the documents from the murder, trial, and execution. The human skin cover is embossed with a skull and crossbones with gold tooled lettering reading, Cutis Vera Johannes Horwood, or The Real Skin of John Horwood. The macabre book still remains in the Bristol Record Office, one of only a few examples of books bound in human skin. Horwood's skeleton, complete with a noose around its neck, became property of the University of Bristol, where it was stored until 2011, when descendants of Horwood finally regained ownership of the remains and were able to give the man a proper burial. Wow, what a tale to make your skin crawl. If human skin books give you the heebie-jeebies, then maybe you'd like to hear about a little western newspaper full of questionable news stories and tall tales, and how a neglected press found a new life in the desert. Ah, that's a desert coyote's love call you hear. Some have given the coyote a very bad name, but all admit they're very, very smart. I, I have a little story of a coyote. You see, about seven years ago, Madame Bellows moved into a desert cabin up near the Accordion Mountains. 
she was lonesome. So one day, I took her a baby coyote. I thought, well, now, I'll tell her that as long as this thing is a baby, for about six months, she, she'll have a nice little pet, and then she'd better get rid of it. She didn't. She didn't get rid of it in six months. For two years, she sang to that coyote, night and day. And the coyote got to singing with her. It was a grand opera they sang. You could not tell one voice from the other. Real nervous it was. We we laid the madam to rest under a tearful desert willow at the oasis a year ago. Hear him? There's that coyote again. He sings each night from the shadow of the palms. Some nights, when the echo is clear, it sounds just like a duet. Uh, I, I, I'm boasting now, and I'm very proud. My dog, Whiskers, uh, he played the part of the coyote, and uh, he knows he did a good job, and it's going to cost me plenty of hamburger. That was a clip of Harry Oliver, self-proclaimed writer, editor, publisher, distributor, artist, owner, mirage salesman, secessionist, and press agent for the Desert Rat Scrapbook a single broadsheet newspaper printed quarterly from 1945 to 1967. The Desert Rat scrapbook covered current events from Oliver's adobe home in the desert town of Thousand Palms, California. Articles included titles like Cats is Cats, Tumbleweed Sightings, and advertisements for events such as hermit conventions, and sports reviews, my favorite describing the difficulty of judging a lazy dog contest because when you get too many dogs together, they just get over being lazy. Oliver was born in Hastings, Minnesota in 1888 and raised amongst trappers, lumberjacks, and steamboat workers. As a child, he was pulled out of school by his father who insisted that he would learn more by working in a print shop. He immediately took to printing, eventually moving on to print posters for the Ringling Brothers Circus as a teenager. In 1909, he and his family moved to California, and he began working as a set designer for films. Oliver was nominated for the first Academy Awards for the film Street Angel in 1928. Over the next few decades, he worked as an art director and was very popular for his atmospheric sets and attention to detail. Oliver retired from the industry in 1941 and moved to the isolated desert town of Thousand Palms. One year after starting the Desert Rat Scrapbook, Oliver came across a vintage press that had been collecting dust for the past 20 years at the publishing house for the San Bernardino Sun. When Oliver saw the old press, an 1870 Washington hand press with ornamental brass fittings, he started a campaign to gain its ownership, vowing that the old bit of machinery would help make his desert yarns sound more truthful. He started corresponding with the San Bernardino Sun about the old press. Oliver said that he had been collecting antique type from the worn fonts 
of nearly every ghost town print shop from Tombstone to Calico to Skidoo, and that the press and his type belonged together so that they could round out a full century in the printing business in the desert. Oliver continued to spin tall tales about the press's history, including a long-winded story about having to use shoe polish as ink until the great steamboat race to bring black ink to Yuma. Eventually, Oliver's cajoling paid off, and the press was given to him on perpetual loan. So in 1950, Oliver loaded up the 700-pound press on the tailgate of his 1928 Ford station wagon and brought it to his adobe home in the desert, which he had named Fort Oliver. There, it was fixed up and used to print runs of 10,000 desert rat scrapbooks four times a year for the next 27 years. What a fun segment! And I promise that was merely an excerpt of the incredible Harry Oliver desert rat scrapbook story. We will definitely have an extended version filled with more of his tall tales and wild printing stories in future episodes. Well, that does it for our special pilot episode of Marginalia, Stories Beyond the Book. Thank you for listening, and I hope that your ears and brain have enjoyed themselves. Our website is still in the works, but in the meantime, you can find more information on my website. That's www.carrieschroeder.com, K-E-R-I-S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Marginalia Podcast. That's all one word, M-A-R-G-I-N-A-L-I-A Podcast. Thank you.